No? Yes, okay. Thank you, Matt and Sandy and the whole team. Certainly appreciate What a Savior. Amen. I hope that you are enjoying the study in Colossians as much as I am. We've been admonished, or not admonished, but encouraged um, through the weeks to be reading the book of Colossians regularly, to be studying the various passages that are preached, that are being preached on and whatever. And if you're doing that, you just have to, have to be getting some of the blessing that I've been receiving. It's just an amazing book. And hallelujah, what a savior, because that's really the, the thrust of the book that we're looking at this morning. So if you would, if you turn with me in your Bibles to um, Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to be reading the same passage that Aaron read earlier. Uh, actually, verses 15 through 20 of this passage, chapter 1, are known by theologians and historians of Scripture as being an early hymn of the church. Uh, I can't sing a good hymn, so I wouldn't know how to sing this one, so you're going to be spared that altogether. Uh, but it just it just is so full of the Savior and we're going to read one more time and then we'll pray. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind, by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under earth, under heaven, I'm sorry, every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Father, we help us to, to just appreciate the privilege that we have to know such a wonderful Savior. And help us this morning as we go through this particular passage of Scripture and we see, uh, we just see Jesus lifted up as his only right. And we see uh, just his glory. And we see how much he's done for us. And we have the privilege of knowing him and indeed worshiping him and eventually spending eternity with him. We thank you for all of that. Help us to have clear minds and clear understanding as we see what your Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul has recorded here for us concerning the Lord Jesus. We thank you in his precious name. Amen. 
as I've said already, the, the, the thrust of the book, and particularly the thrust of this passage, is um, I don't have it right all these years. Is that better? All right, good. Thank you. Thank you, John. It's not always good when your son has to tell you you don't have it right. <laughs> but we'll, we'll go with it at this point in time. Okay. The whole thrust that we have here is lifting up Jesus. If I was to just have three words to describe what I have to tell you this morning, it's that Jesus is supreme. Amen. That's Thank you, brother. It just right through the whole text. It's the whole emphasis of the whole thing is the supremacy of Christ. Aaron told us way back in the introduction to this series about identifying counterfeit money. And he said the way you learn how to do that is to study the real thing. So that when you study the real thing, then you'll know a phony just by glancing at it. Um, in a similar fashion, in, in 1893, there was a, a World's Fair in Chicago. About 20 million people attended, and D.L. Moody was ministering in Chicago at that time. And he, because at that, at that um, World's Fair, they were having a parliament of world religions, and they were hoping to get together and to bring together all the ideas of all the world religions and create one world religion. And D.L. Moody was being encouraged to speak out against it. And he, he did speak. He, he rented uh, movie theaters and he had in one place a tent, a great tent meeting and just all kinds of, of other places where he spoke around and about this thing. But he didn't speak against that. What he said was, I'm going to lift up Christ and I'm going to make him so attractive that people will just come to him and just have nothing to do with anything else or anyone else. And I think that's the, the, the essence of what, uh, what Paul is doing here. Is he's lifting up Christ and showing that he's supreme above everything else. The, the very word supreme means that there is none greater or better or surpassing that he is supreme. So the, the three words of, of uh, describing what we're talking about this morning is that Jesus is supreme. So if we take a look at the text, we see um, he's supreme in a number of ways. Verse 15 starts out with, he is the image of the invisible God. So I would suggest that this has to do with his supremacy in his character. He is God. Anything else is blasphemy. Making Jesus anything great, terrific, fantastic, wonderful, really neat, great teacher, whatever, but not God is blasphemy. He is God. Even here when it says he is the image, it, the word is the same word that's used uh, uh, or it comes from the Greek uh, root that, that is icon. And we because of modern technology, we know what an icon is at this point, okay? So it, it's that, but it's more because 
in Genesis, we're told that we, human beings, were created in the image of God. But it doesn't say that about Jesus. It doesn't say he was created in the image of God, because that would be sort of like making a copy. He is the image of God. He is the real, true thing. He's the, the real thing. The scripture is loaded with passages that would affirm that for us, that Jesus is Jesus is God. So in his character, we see that he is God. Uh, just turn to a couple of uh, passages. Um, John 1.18 No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Uh, earlier in that same passage, um, I'm sorry. Verse 14, yeah, earlier. When this, this whole thing of John chapter, the whole passage of John chapter 1 is talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. And we see in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So there's no doubt that he is God. He's God and in declaration, as declared by the Scripture, He's God in the image. If we turn to uh, to Hebrews chapter one, Hebrews chapter one, the very first verses of this are really precious. Well, all the Scripture is precious, but these are particularly favorites of mine. John uh, Hebrews one, God who at various times in different ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophet, has in these fast last days spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the worlds he made the worlds his son we'll get back to that later he who being the brightness of his glory and the express image the exact image he is God of his person upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We'll come back again to the upholding all, hand, all things by the word of his power as well. But the scripture is quite clear. Uh, not that we can make any bones about it, that Jesus is God. Um, taking a look at uh, Titus. Titus chapter 2. Verse 11, 12, and 13. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. One person, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is God. There can be no doubt about that. Part of the heresy that the Colossians were dealing with was um, a, the Greek thought that God was so above everything that he could not possibly have any relationship with humans. So he created other beings that would intercede for him. And what they were doing was bringing this into the church and saying that Jesus was one of these representatives of God, an emanation, they called it. He was a representative of God that was 
uh, that God had created to have contact with men for him. But Paul is making it quite clear here, and the scripture makes it quite clear, that that's not the case. He's not an emanation. He's not a person, an intermediary in this sense. He actually is God. So the first point I would like to leave you with this morning is that Jesus is supreme, and the one reason he's supreme is because of his character, who he is. He's supreme. He was from the beginning. He is. He always will be. He's God, and there can be no bones about it. The second uh, area that I would suggest that we see that he is supreme has to do with creation. Creation's come up a couple of times already as we've been uh, looking at these looking at this passage. And it says the very second phrase in verse 15, he's the firstborn over all creation. Now, firstborn can be a tricky phrase because firstborn in, to us in our society, in our world, typically would mean chronologically first. So that if you were to be on the way home and your mom and dad and a couple of kids in the car you wouldn't have any trouble knowing who was the firstborn. Okay, the oldest one, the one that came first, that's the firstborn. That, isn't that what the word says, firstborn? Okay. So chronologically firstborn. But in the Bible and, and in that culture, in that time, often the, word, the phrase firstborn meant firstborn with respect to rank or position or authority and not necessarily chronologically. And the way we tell the difference is by the context. If it's talking about a family, then it's pretty obvious he's talking about firstborn in that context. But here he's talking about firstborn uh, in the same sense that in, um, in Exodus 4, Jesus talks about Israel as being a firstborn among the nations. Well, it certainly wasn't the first nation, but it was the firstborn because God appointed it as such. It was the firstborn. It was his chosen nation. Uh, we're familiar with Esau and Jacob. Esau was chronologically first. With the twins, he was the first one to leave the womb. But Jacob was the one that received the blessing. He was the firstborn. When we talk about the gods of the Old Testament uh, patriarchs, rather, we talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't talk about Abraham, Isaac, and Esau, although Esau was chronologically firstborn. It was through Jacob that the Messiah was to come. The blessing came through Jacob. So that was the meaning of the firstborn in that, in that passage. Uh, one more direct passage is in Psalms chapter 89. Psalms chapter 89, verse Psalms. 89 verse 27, Jesus is talking about, uh, God rather is talking here about what he's to do. And he says, he shall cry to me, talking about Jesus. He shall talk, cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So you can't just make one of your children the firstborn chronologically first one born chronologically is the first one born but in terms of rank and position and importance and authority it's a position before God it's a position that you have 
and it has nothing to do with the chronology uh, of the situation. So when we see this, we're talking about him being the firstborn, him in authority of all creation. So he's supreme over creation by a number of things here. And um, in this particular, in this couple of verses, we see, first of all, he, he's, uh, he's firstborn, he's preeminent in creation. Verse 16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. All things were created by him, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things are created through him and for him. So first of all, we see that everything is created by him, by Jesus. He's supreme over creation. That's what he has done, and he's done it right from the very beginning. He's been there from the beginning. Uh, the on heaven and, er, and in earth, on earth and in heaven, rather, is is just simply an expression of, of the physical world. I mean, it's either here or it's the rest of the universe around us. Uh, the visible and invisible it doesn't really need an explanation. It's what we see, the material stuff, or it's things like emotional stuff. It could be something like truth or love that we know they exist. We don't see them. But he's also the creator of all of that, visible and invisible. And when he talks about thrones and dominions and principalities and powers, it's similar to the, to the phrase in, in um, Ephesians 6 where he talks about putting on the armor of God because we fight against principalities and powers. What he's talking about here is the spiritual beings. So what he's really saying is that Jesus created everything. He created everything that's obvious to us that exists, things that aren't so obvious, and things that are maybe even less obvious than that. But everything, I was kind of reminded of the, the passage in Romans 8 toward the end of the chapter where he's asking, uh, the writer is asking the question, what can separate us from the love of God? And he lists, not this, not this, not this, not this. And then just in case he misses anything, he says, not any other created thing either. So it's the same sense here. Everything you could think of it was created, and it was created by Jesus. Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is God, and he's supreme, and he's supreme over creation. He's also supreme over creation in the sense that it was created through him and for him. In, in Romans chapter 1, we often use the uh, passage from about verse 18 down through 20, where it talks about God is made known to man in what we call general revelation. He's made known to man by his creation. We know there's a God because we see what he's done. We see the beauty of creation. We see the intricacy. We have the debates as to whether there is a creator or not. And the, obvious, the answer is obvious to us. So in that sense, okay, it's created through him and for him. Uh, and Jesus is in that same because he's the creator, okay? We often, when we look at that passage, we think about God the Father, but it's all of the, of the Godhead that's created. And everything that we see should point us to Jesus because he's the creator. Um, in John 8, we find that uh, when Jesus is debating with, was talking at the woman at the well, he tells her that... Um, 
No, I'm sorry, that wasn't the woman at the well. He was debating with some of the Pharisees. And he said to them, before Abraham was, I am. And what was he saying? He was saying, I have always existed. I have existed from time. I've been before anything. There was Jesus, and he is God. So he's supreme over creation in his timing. He was before. And the one that I like the best and use the most uh, in my science discussions has to do with uh, the end of that particular phrase. And it says in verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things consist. Or another version might say all things are held together or all things hold together. And in the passage we saw in Hebrews, it was said uh, that they all hold together by the word of his power. Just to put a little bit of science into this because they insist on calling me Dr. Gray. Do, do something with that, okay. Um, from about 1920, when scientists began to understand that there were atoms and these atoms weren't the smallest things that existed, but they were subatomic particles, there has always been a lack of understanding of what holds the atom together because the atom is, consists of negative particles, positive particles, and neutral particles. But the atom, if it's, let's say it's this big, is a, is a microscopic place right in the middle. It's the nucleus. That's where most of the mass is. That's where we talk about nuclear energy, nuclear power, nuclear. That's where most of the mass is. And in that mass is where all of the positively charged particles are. Now, everything else we know about science says you bring two positively charged particles together and they will repel each other. And yet, every atom that exists has got loads of positive charged particles in the nucleus holding together. And the scientists uh, just had no explanation for this. They knew it was a strong nuclear force holding the atoms together. So, in their literary brilliance, they decided we needed to give this a name, so we called it the strong nuclear force. And if you, if you go and Google it or, or look it up in a textbook somewhere, or maybe even Siri will know about it, uh, you will find out that that's the name, the, the strong nuclear force. And it goes without an explanation. But can you imagine if Jesus is holding everything in the universe together? against this force, if he just stops, it says in Hebrews, if we read in Hebrews, it was by the word of his power, he's holding it together. If he just stops holding it together, an explosion like, like we can't imagine. I'm told that the, the bomb that was used in Hiroshima in Japan was an atomic bomb. It involved all the principles of various things, including Einstein's equation E equals mc squared, the amount of energy that came forth out of that was created by using up as fuel nuclear, these nuclear particles rearranging and leaving the nucleus, they used up less than 700 milligrams of material. That's less than the, the mass of a dime. So less than the mass of a dime 
when it was released, if you will, so that the positive forces, positive particles could do their thing, created that bomb. Now imagine every one of us in here is made up of literally millions of atoms with millions of these positively charged ions. And certainly, I don't know about the rest of you, but I know that I weigh more than 700 milligrams. Okay, so if that all of a sudden is converted to energy, that could be, could be, you know, end times. Peter talks about the whole thing going up, erupting in fire, about the destruction of the earth at the end times. That could very well be, and that could very well be what's being referred to here. What's holding it together? According to, to verse 17, Jesus is holding it together. And according to Hebrews, he's holding it together by his word. So he's created it all. He was before it all. It was created for him. And he's holding it all together. He's sustaining it all. That makes him supreme in another sense. So it's another piece of evidence. It's enough that he's supreme that he's God. But now we've got him supreme as the one that's created everything and didn't create it and left and, and leave. He created it and is holding it together. Probably more importantly than that, if you go down to the next verse, verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. So I would say that he's supreme in his character because he's God. He's supreme in his in creation because of all those things I've just enumerated. And he's also supreme because he's the head of the church. And it says, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The beginning literally means the one where everything starts. And I think here we're talking about, we're talking about the church. Because it's going to talk about, uh, it's going to talk about the resurrection here. We're going to get to that in a minute. But he's talking about, he who's the head of the body of the, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, referring to the resurrection here. Just pray with me with you all. I'm just losing my thoughts. Father, just clarify, clear my mind. Let what I say be what you have to be said. Just pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. If we turn, if we turn to Revelation chapters 4 and 5, which are two of my favorite chapters, I think there's some indication of what he's talking about here because there are two events that really have changed all of the history of the universe, two events that we know of, okay? In the beginning, God created. And then at the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, God recreated. And if you turn to Revelation chapter 4 and 5, you'll see that in chapter 4, God, sitting on the throne, is being praised because he's created everything. Let's, let's turn to that. It's worth turning to that.
Revelation 4, verse, the end of verse 8. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then verse 11, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist, and they were created. Then if we turn over from there uh, to chapter 5, and it's talking now about the lamb, the, the uh, root of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one that was able to open the seals. And it says in verse 9, they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And then down verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom, and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then down to the end of verse 13. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. So he is the beginning. He's the beginning of the church, and it began how? It began with his death, burial, and resurrection. And he did that in order that he might reconcile us. We're back in... Um, Back in Colossians again. Verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Again, there is all the fullness of the Father is, is the Father. I mean, all the fullness is all there is. And so... It's another statement or another way of, of, of wording the fact that, that God and the, God the Father and God the Son are one. They are God. And to him all the fullness should dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And, and he goes on here. Having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked words. Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable in his sight. All of this to say that Jesus is over the church. He is the originator of the church, if you will. There is no church without the death, burial, and resurrection. He is the head of the church, which is just another way of saying or another evidence for saying that Jesus is God and that he's supreme. Then the question comes to me, do we need to be reconciled? He's writing this book to the saints, to the believers, to the Christians, the ones that have been redeemed, if you will, at Colossae. And yet he's reminding them of how they have been reconciled. And yet there may be some here, there may have been some there that have not yet been reconciled. And being reconciled comes about from the passage that I indicated. Here was Romans chapter 8. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 10. 
I like Romans 8 so much I keep referencing it. Uh, Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes to righteousness and with the mouth confession is made to salvation. With the heart one believes and with the mouth confession is made for salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. So Christ is the head of, Christ is God. He's supreme. He's supreme in his character. He's supreme in creation. He's supreme in the church. And the supremacy of the church is all about a new creation, creating um, from us, from those that have rebelled, creating a new, a new entity, the church, the body of believers. Notice at the end of verse 18 what it says, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Now there's a real distinction in my mind between supremacy and preeminence. Jesus is supreme. That's a fact. It has nothing to do with you or me or any of the rest of us. He is supreme. But we have a part in it in the sense that we can place him in our lives in the appropriate position of preeminence. We can make him preeminence. We can make him the most important thing in our life. So he is supreme, whether I choose to acknowledge that or not. He is supreme. But whether or not he's preeminent in my life is up to me. I need to make that decision. I need to choose whether I'm going to believe, worship, and serve him or not. If we look at our, our, look at our world today from the beginning, from the first... Okay, let's go past, let's go back further than the first sin, okay, than the fall. In the beginning, it was as it should be. God created and he said everything's very good. But then Adam and Eve sinned and it hasn't been very good ever since. And it hasn't been very good because the world doesn't put Christ as preeminent. And we can all agree on that because it has very little to do with us and our personal decisions. But then we come to the point, what about us? Okay. Is he preeminent in our lives? Is he preeminent in my life? And I would go so far as to say, if there are areas in your life that are not going the way they should, okay, if you've got trouble with your finances, I'm not saying that that's absolutely the reason, but ask yourself, is Christ preeminent in my finances? Is he preeminent in my marriage? Is he preeminent in the way I run my family, the way I raise my children? Is Christ really preeminent in everything in my life? Every choice I have to make, every decision? That's my choice. He is supreme. But I can refuse to recognize that. And the results are just the results that we see in a society today where we're saying, boy, everything really is a mess. And if you've got areas that are a mess, maybe it's time to be asking that question. 
Is Christ preeminent in these particular decisions? I think we'll stop there and let us to ponder that. Let's pray. Father, we, first of all, we just absolutely recognize that Jesus is supreme, that he is God. And then we, we recognize that we have a need to recognize the order that you have designed things to be in. He is firstborn. And we need to recognize him as Lord and Savior. And then from there, Lord, we just... Um, just are so thankful that you've even given us this opportunity. And I just pray that we would be honest in evaluating our own lives, me in particular, as to whether Christ really is, is preeminent in my life. We just thank you that we have the opportunity to worship and praise him this morning and to even come repentantly and putting him in the position that he absolutely deserves. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.